Hi, you guys, and welcome back to the podcast. We are the Carwells. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah, and we are, as you know, Airbnb interior designers and investors. <laughs> All right, everyone. Welcome back to Catch Up with the Carwells podcast. Today, we have Ryan, who is a CPA who specializes in short-term rental tax strategies. Hey, welcome, thank Ryan. you for having me. Thank you for joining us. We are so excited to pick his brain because Emily and I are by no means a tax specialist, and that has been a huge portion of scaling our real estate portfolio that's brought us a lot of anxiety along the way. Um, and I cannot express enough how much of an advantage it is having someone who specializes in short-term rentals have your back when it comes to taxes. So we're excited to pick his brain today for you guys and of course, personally for us as well. We always learn a thing or two on these podcasts. So um, before we dig in today, as always, we're going to start this episode with a real estate or Airbnb horror story. And Ryan also has Airbnbs along with being a CPA. So Ryan, tell us a horror story that you've had to deal with as an Airbnb. Uh, so host. it would have been a horror story if I didn't, if I wasn't proactive. So I have a Lake House on Lake Erie, uh, and my primary guests are normally either fishermen or bachelor and bachelorette parties. So fishermen and bachelorette parties typically don't mix too well because one group smells completely terrible and the next group is very fresh. So I actually had this booking where in my listing, I tell the fishermen, hey, you can't clean a fish in, in my backyard. By no means can you clean fish on premise. I actually have... Uh, relationships with the cleaning, the fish cleaning vendors in the area for my guests to be able to take their fish to go clean, get their fish clean. Uh, well, these guys didn't listen and they cleaned their fish on the property. And so my cleaner was turning over the unit and she's like, Hey, the thing reeks of fish. Like I got the osium running, but I can't get it out. We have a bachelorette party checking in this afternoon. Like, what do you want to do? And I was like, Oh, okay. How long is their booking? She's like, Oh, they're in for four it was like four, it was a four day bachelorette party booking. And I, I was like, this is going to suck so bad because they're, they're going to get here and it reeks of fish and no girl wants to smell fish. So what I did was I was really proactive. I got on the phone with the person who booked the party and I offered to pay their grocery bill as well as their uh, drinking tab for the week. And I didn't know if that was really ballsy or not, but I, I ended up covering it. it. It ended up being like, a little over $500, but I luckily I was able to save a four or five day booking and that relationship. So, and I saved myself from a review and I got a five star review at the end. So that was kind of like my horror story that could have been really wrong, but turned out to be fine. Oh my God. I'm surprised that it was only $500 first yeah. of all, because I, we've been to many a bachelorette parties and that is really low for an alcohol bill, but that's such a good tip to like make a relationship with the fish cleaning people in the city because I'm in um, Northern Michigan and people fit. This is a really big fishing area as well. And that was a big fear of mine is that fish is going to get cleaned in the house. And I'm like, how do I combat that? Like, do I make sure that there's like a sink way away from the house, like on the property that they, like, I didn't know how I was going to handle that, but that's actually. A really yeah. Good the idea. sink sink away from the house is fine or, and a combination of what's like known as a mudroom. So we took, there was a little like shed in the back, uh, not the garage, but the shed in the back, we actually converted into like a mud room where like fishers come back, they can hang their dirty clothes or their wet clothes in that room rather than having to bring them in the house. 
their their boots, their you know uh, shoe wear, whatever. Keep it all separate from the house, so don't let them bring in the, it in the house. That's super mm-hmm. smart. Yeah, and fish are, I mean, that smell is just so strong. There was an episode probably a year ago now where I shared a horror story of I had like a nightmare guest that was trying to sabotage the reservation and mm. wanted their money back. And so they cooked fish on a pan of mine and stuck that cooked fish on a pan in like the very top cupboard that's like not reachable in our kitchen. And I mean, my cleaners spent like, they deep cleaned it like two times before the next guest and just absolutely had to tear apart the apartment trying to find this fish and eventually found it. That's terrible. That smell is just, it's unmatched. (laughs) No, thank you. Good for you though, for being ballsy and taking that bar tab because I would have abused that had I been the guest. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Okay, so we've got some questions for you today all around taxes for short-term rentals. So let's get into it. Um, First off, I want to know how you got specifically niched down into short-term rental taxes. I started off, so my first crack at real estate, I was actually a multifamily rental. So I I bought a two-unit, bought a four-unit, and they were just regular long-term rentals. And I was kind of playing that game of, you know, I'm going to make $300 a door. And hope, you know, 200 doors later, I'll be financially free. Uh, it was so wrong. I mean, it, it was just, it was kind of like a slower path to wealth. I, I would say slower path to wealth, but it was like a much more safer path. And then it really just got started with, I, I want to say probably late 2019, early 2020, when I noticed, you know, people were buying these $300,000 properties in the Smoky Mountains and, you know, they're making a ton of money on them. Smokies was like the nor- the first area that, like I laid my eyes on just kind of seeing how much money these people are making. Um, not to mention that, you know, the financing options for short-term rentals are a little bit uh, easier than multifamily. So for, if you want to, if you want a multifamily, that's not your primary residence, you're going to have to come with 20 to 25% down. Um, the lending, you know, whether you like it or, or not in 2020, 2021, made it really easy for people to get uh, short-term rentals using 10% down secondary home loans. And, and using their you know W two incomes and their DTI to qualify, so a combination of the uh, additional cash flow, the ability to borrow money for them, you're you're a host, not a landlord. So you know you're you're hosting people at your property. And you're not necessarily like a slumlord. You know that was really attractive. So for short term rentals, it's more cash flow, easier financing options. You're a host, not a landlord. And then just the tax benefits are so much more beneficial for short-term rental owners than it is to own single family or multifamily properties. And that's really why I got kind of niched down in the short-term rental space. So it was led by your own investments first and seeing advantages on that front and then leaned into your CPA's you know, structure as well. That's amazing. Um, it's incredible too that I mean you get the advantages of you know, helping hosts around you, but you also get the advantage of investing in them yourself. Yeah, and I, I may or may not have a spreadsheet of like every single client's property and how much it grosses, like a master database or not. You know yeah, exactly I... what markets to go into because you get to see what everybody else is doing. That's yep. genius. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's so many property management companies that we've had conversations with that say the same thing. They're like, we have our own personal data and that is the advantage. And I'm like, things you don't even think about. Definitely. Yep. So speaking of benefits... So we get this question all the time and like we we know the basics of what these terms mean, but can you explain cost seg and bonus depreciation 
and what they do for your property and like your taxes? Yeah. So normally, you know, before uh, Trump came in and changed the tax code, really, truly, the normal depreciation for a rental property is based on what class life it is. So let's say I had a $390,000 short-term rental. They're normally depreciated over 39 years. So I would only get $10,000 of depreciation each year for 39 years. And so if my, let's say my property netted 40 grand and I had $10,000 of depreciation, well, I only had to pay taxes on 30 grand now. Uh, what cost second bonus depreciation does is instead of taking the 10 grand a year for 39 years, you, you basically get to front load the depreciation in, in year one, and then you take the remainder over the other 38 years. So what that would look like normally is in year one, you'd get 70, 80,000 of depreciation. And then every year onward, you'd maybe only get like five or 6,000 a year in depreciation. But now you're with your 40 or $50,000 of income, you're completely offsetting that and you have losses left over. So you don't even pay any tax on the rental income, but now you actually have what are called excess passive losses, which you can use to offset other rental income that you might have or other properties. Or if you qualify, you can actually use it to offset your W-2 or your business income. Which um, which is insane. I mean, we didn't, full, you know, we had heard like, hey, when you purchase a property, you're going to want to do a cost seg on your property. And, you know, until you actually go through it yourself, you don't understand like the gravity of that benefit. And so over the last couple of years, as we've started purchasing properties in Michigan and we've done um, cost segs on all of our properties and we've watched what that's done to our tax bill, going from paying a hefty tax bill every year with my husband having his own business and not having the cost seg and then us adding real estate on top of it and how much less we pay in taxes because of it has just completely changed how much more we can invest the next year by what we keep in our pocket as opposed to paying in taxes. So the, I tell people, I don't, the cost segregation study makes sense most of the time, but there are some certain factors where you'd want to look into that it doesn't. So if you're in a lower tax bracket, like maybe you're just getting started, um, it doesn't make sense because you're in a lower tax bracket and you're probably in a higher tax bracket in the future. And so if you accelerate those deductions in a year where you have low taxable income, you won't have those deductions for a year where you have higher taxable income. So I don't want to uh, bore everybody with the specifics, but if you're interested, if you just go to my, if you go to my podcast, learn like a CPA show, I, I do have an entire podcast dedicated to the pros and cons of should you do it or not. But really uh, you have to understand time value of money in order to get depreciation. So like I said, you either get 10,000 a year for 39 years, or you can front load it in year one and then take a small amount in the following years. And so it, you have to think of time value money as, are you the borrower or the lender? So, and, and when we go borrow money, we have that fixed PITI or we have that fixed principal and interest every year for 30 years. You know, if I owe you 10 grand, you want to, you want me to pay that back as soon as possible. But in real estate, I get to delay that over 30 years. With tax benefits, we don't want to wait 30 years to take them. We want to take them as soon as possible. So it really is like a inflation, time value of money, uh, play more than it is anything else. Right. And I mean, also, I feel like I've had several conversations with people who don't fully understand cost seg and the fact that if you were to sell the property like a year after you purchase it, it doesn't make sense to take it. Is that can you talk on that a little bit as well? Yeah, so one of my mentors does like luxury uh, STR flips basically, and we 
I've literally built out a spreadsheet just for him to be able to see if it makes sense or not. Because, you know, if he's, if you're holding on to it for two years, even like, let's just, let's just assume like, you know, you, you say 50 grand in year one and you pay taxes in year three, 50 grand, you still were able to borrow 50 grand essentially for three years, interest free from the government. So for most people, the reason why it doesn't work is they just simply don't have the wherewithal. So if you were to save 50, you know, I'm dealing with clients that are doing this now where if you save 50 grand in year one, and let's say you sell in year three and you have to pay it back, there's a lot of people don't have the discipline to like hold on to that right. money. And so that's why a short, typically less than three years, I, I generally wouldn't recommend most people to do it. Uh, but in this person's case, like they're very extremely disciplined, they're knowledgeable about the tax code. So they know to just kind of put that money to the side and hold on to it. Right. And another question I have too is, you know, bonus depreciation or is going down right now it's at 80% and mm. then it's going to 60 and then so on and so forth. Um, and I don't fully understand the history of it swaying back and forth. Do you anticipate that it'll ever go back up to a hundred or do you think it's just fizzling out to what it should be? Yeah. Anymore? So there are some, there are some extender bills in Congress, which to be, just basically extend out the bill because it does actually require an act of Congress in order to get it back to a hundred or to extend it. Uh, so if you're listening to this, you know, uh, call your politician or call your senator and, and ask them to, uh, you know, vote to or ask to extend bonus depreciation. I think it'll really depend on where the economy kind of looms, you know, when it when it goes down to 60 or even 40, because if the economy is like in a recession and people are not wanting to spend money and people are hunkering down, you know, they will do that if there's no tax incentive versus if they if they increase it back up to 100 you know, that incentivizes people to build, that incentivizes investors to buy property. Um, it incentivizes economic behavior. So there's a there's an instance where I could see them actually putting it back to 100. Um, right. We'll cross our fingers for that. <laughs> it also depends on the political climate, too. You know, if we get if we get another, you know, I'll be honest, if we get another red president and they'll probably likely extend it, too. Right. So. Yeah, that's basically how we've always been. Um, the conversations that we've had around it has been exactly that. Is there like it's it swings with, you know, depending on who's in office and what political party they're with. So um, we won't get political on it, but that just is the result of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going off of cost second bonus depreciation, because a lot of people don't know about those, what are other tax advantages that you see hosts missing out on most of the time where you're like, Hey, this is something that you actually could write off or whatever else that they're just like not even thinking. Yeah. About. I, I mean, I see people miss, um, something as simple as insurance all the time. So normally like your insurance cost is always escrowed in your mortgage statement, um, but sometimes it's not. And so if it's, if, if it's not in there, I'm always constantly asking investors, Hey, I don't see insurance anywhere. And they'll say, and then they'll call their insurance provider and say, "Yeah, I paid eight hundred dollars or a thousand dollars this year in insurance." Uh, another another common is what I was saying on a webinar I did last night is to really ju to just know your market. So if I see a property in the Smoky Mountains and I don't see like a line on it for pest control, for example, like I know you have pest control if you have a property in the mountains or you know Blue Ridge or Smoky Mountains. Those are some of the things. As far as other expenses go, I would say. A lot of us are using our cell phones and our data and our Wi-Fi for our short-term rentals, but not actually taking it as a deduction on our return. Uh, this is a business expense for me. So I run three businesses off this thing. 
I'm also my lifestyle is, is predicated on business. So I can pretty much find a way to deduct whatever costs I have to incur because I'm probably doing it for something in one of my businesses. Right. Uh, what about, this is a personal question here. Um, what about yeah. when you stay at Airbnbs? I mean, if you are an Airbnb host, like for us, we've always written off the Airbnbs that we stay in when we travel because we create content around those Airbnbs, right? So we have like very valid proof that while we're staying there, we're providing education, whatever the case may be. But for your average host, are you able to start writing off the Airbnbs that you stay at when you go on vacation as market research? Probably not for the average host, but for you guys. Well, now market research is different. So if you if you have a valid claim to say, hey, I'm I'm in the area, I'm buying properties here. I obviously don't have a place to stay at because I don't own a property here. You can you can write off your cost to you know acquire or I guess stay there as long as it's reasonable and necessary, right? So ordinary necessary is actually the term. So the way that looks is, can you guys rent you know a two hundred three hundred dollar night Airbnb? Yeah, could you do like an eight hundred nine hundred dollar like Four Seasons hotel? Probably not. So it has to be it has to be ordinary and it has to be necessary in the course of your business. Uh, so think of like um, a dentist, for example. The guy needs a car to drive to work. Does he need like a hundred ninety thousand Porsche GTS? Maybe, maybe not. So it just has to be ordinary, necessary in your course of business. You know, cameras, uh, filming equipment, co- you know, content. That's all necessary. Like all the stuff that I use. I got my Yeti mic, got my webcam. That's all ordinary, necessary. It just can't be extravagant let's just say (laughs) so what you're saying is we need to push into the luxury airbnb market for reviews online (laughs) well and i don't know about this whole uh fiasco you're doing in chicago either so we'll have to we'll have to chat offline about that as as many ways as we can give uncle sam the least amount of money possible we're here for Um, okay. So as a CPA and a real estate investor, how are you scaling your portfolio? Because we personally know how difficult it can be to run multiple businesses at once and still prioritize your own real estate investments. Are you outsourcing that? And are you involved in syndications, partnerships, or are you just scaling your real estate portfolio on your own on top of everything that you do? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, GPs, general partnerships. So I have a uh, campground in Branson. It's 13 acres. Uh, we have glamping tents, single family homes and RV parks or RVs on it. I also have an RV park in Colorado, uh, in Blackhawk, Colorado, kind of similar, similar size, uh, multi- multiple million dollar purchase price that I don't, I don't run the day to day per se, but I, I oversee like the accounting and finance and administration work and I help underwrite some of the deals. How I'm scaling. So Interestingly enough, with multiple businesses, what you really have to understand, I would say, is the concept of the genius zone, which is what I talk about all the time, is figuring out what your top 10% at in the world and trying to spend a lot of your time doing that. So there's a book called The Genius Zone. And the argument the author makes is that people really only spend 10% of their total time in their genius zone and 90% of the time doing all the other like shit that doesn't qualify to be in their genius zone. And so if you can figure out how to buy your time back, whether that's by hiring VAs or delegating work to other people, so you could spend 80 to 90% of your time in your genius zone, you're going to have so much more fulfillment because you're doing the things that you love. And most likely you're making the most money if you can spend that time in that genius zone. As far as scaling goes, you, you want to be able to scale at no incremental cost to you. 
So Alex Ramosi talks about there's four high value skills that every person should know how to do if they want to make a lot of money. One of the skill, I, I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but basically he would always say at no incremental cost to you. So if I can film a video one time, resend it out, reshare it, and it lives beyond me, right? If you have to freeze your time, you know, a, a plumber goes to a house, he gets a, he gets a call, he goes to the house, he fixes the toilet, he bills them, and he goes away and he has to fix another toilet, right? He has to fix another toilet to get money. Versus there might be a plumber that's like, oh, let me create a course or let me create like this product or let me teach other plumbers in mass how to go fix other people's toilets. He's freezing his time and he's basically redistributing that at no incremental cost to him. And that's how you really do buy your time back and you, you become more wealthy. So you have to figure out how do you freeze your time and how do you scale at no incremental cost to you in these businesses? So, you know, that could be look at as simple as, um, you know, go online, type in genius zone and figure out the quadrant, but identify those tasks that are not meaningless, but that are mundane and boring to you and outsource them to the VAs. And the easiest way to do that, two tools, Google Doc and Loom. So in the Loom, you're going to record yourself doing whatever task it is that you don't want to do, whether it's, you know, Airbnb host check-in or if it's uh, doing bookkeeping or reconciling your financials, film the Loom video. Uh, put a little description, put it in the Google Doc for your VA to go in and say, oh, yeah, how do I do that again? OK, here's a video of him showing me exactly how to do that. Um, yes, you're preaching to the choir there. That's definitely an area that Emily and I are trying to figure out. Right. And I think we've had a hard time like honing in on what our genius zone is because we're so interested in so many corners of this industry. <laughs> um, but that's definitely resulted in us spreading ourselves super thin. Mm -hmm. So we're watching you scale a few businesses and we're saying, okay, let's take what that guy's doing and let's apply it to our own business. So uh, we love watching you scale there. <laughs> definitely. And kind of going off of like personal brand. So you've branded like yourself, you are learn like a CPA. That is where you are pretty much on all social media. How has like branding yourself as the CPA guy impacted your business? Did it like really take off because people have this name that they know you by and they instantly are like, oh, I know that guy and I trust him because I know who learned like a CPA. Yes. Is. So trust is one important part. Uh, the branding is huge. And I'll, I'll give you the hint on there's three pillars that at, if you could do it at mass scale at no incremental cost to you, it will amplify your business. So number one is you have to become the person of interest. So for me, that was when I first started off, I would you know post videos, but more so I would go on these Facebook groups and start commenting on people's posts. People would have financial questions. People would have tax questions. I would just say, hey, my name's Ryan. I'm a CPA. I also own rental properties. Here's, here's the answer. And what would happen is I became so well known for answering, just answering people's questions without ever like sending them like, you know, it, it's so funny those those uh, those memes nowadays where it's like, oh, it's going to ask you a few questions right here, like other tip. But I would I would just I would yeah. just say the answer, provide value, and leave it at that. I wouldn't say, oh, if you want to talk to me, call me here or book a call. You know, I would just give value, give value, become the person of interest. And it got to the point where people would they would uh, people would tag me and they would say, oh, I don't know the answer to this question, but this guy does. Like this guy can help answer your question. And so. You want to become the person of interest in whatever it is that you do. So for me, that was real estate tax. You know, that was rental real estate tax, teaching people how to be wealthy, uh, teaching people how to save money on taxes by real estate. And that's how I started growing that, becoming that person of interest. Social media, you know, podcasts, digital media, all the stuff that you can do to become that person of interest. This pillar number one. 
Pillar number two that I talk about is what's called uh, being the law of reciprocity, basically. So um, people are more likely to buy something from you if they feel like you've given them value without anything else. So that's what I was doing by uh, commenting on those Facebook posts is I was giving value and providing value to people without ever asking for anything in return. Um, you guys got Olive Garden by you? Mm-hmm. So what do they do mm-hmm. when they bring you the bill? A, mi- well, a mint. So uh, Olive Garden yeah. did this study where they had three different waitresses. So waitress one came to the table, brought a mint, right? She got 7% tip on average. Waitress number two came to the table, brought two mints. And the people were like, oh, we got two mints instead of one. We're normally used to getting one. Now we got two. She got like 11% tip. But the waitress that got the most money was the waitress that came to the table, left a mint, went to the kitchen, and came back and brought another mint. Because what it did to the people that were sitting at the table, it they, they said, hey, this, this lady went out of her way to provide more value to us. She got the most tips in return. And so it's being able to give value to people, again, at no incremental cost to you at scale. And people are more likely to buy something from you if they feel like you've already given them value, right? So uh, provide, you know, number one, become person of interest. Number two, law of reciprocity, give value without ever asking for anything in return. And number three, which is arguably the most important, is what I call this uh, transfer of authority. Um, so you might think of it as like a referral. You know, you might say, hey, I'm not a real estate agent, but you need to go talk to Matt because that's just his ballgame. This is what he does, right? But it's more than that. It's, it's, it's saying, hey, here's, here's my experience, but you really need to go talk to Ryan because he's the expert in tax, right? Like just how you guys say, hey, this is what I know about cost segregation, but you really need to go talk to somebody else because that's the transfer of authority. So I don't need to be vetted as much because I've already been vetted through you, right? Because I'm basically utilizing your image and and you're transferring your authority over to me. And it makes it easier for me to close the deal on people because I don't need to be vetted as much because I've already been vetted through you. In fact, the vetting process becomes easier because I already did steps number one and number two. So when I go on somebody like Avery Carl's podcast and it gets like 30,000 downloads a month, people are like, oh, well, who's this Ryan guy? Oh, here's his Instagram. He posts his shit every single day about real estate, person of interest. Oh, he's giving tremendous amounts of value and he doesn't have his wallet open every time. Giving value without ever asking for anything in return, right? And he has that transfer of authority from whoever to, to me. So learning how to use those three little tools there. I was already doing that, but I never saw it until somebody kind of was like, no, no, this is what you're exactly what you're doing. And so those are the three tools I would, if anybody wants to build a brand, those are what I would focus on and at scale. So much of that resonated so deep because I think Emily and I, you know, we've been active on social media, just showing off our journey for the last three years without understanding what that could potentially do for our business in the long run, right? And we didn't have a product to offer. We weren't asking our, our community for anything. We just were posting for the sake of posting because we like content and we like that format and we like social media. And in turn, it's just been the thing that's had the largest payout, honestly, is, is building that personal brand and building that trust. And I think that a lot of people don't give enough networking specific credit to social media because in reality our entire community that we've developed around short-term rentals has been 
by meeting people like you through social media who are obviously an expert in something that we're curious in. So it's like not a process where we have to dig and ask a million people. You literally have who you are all over your social media. So there's a lot less anxiety for us in reaching out to someone like you where we can see that you know what you're talking about as opposed to like trying to build up that trust from day one of not knowing you at all. So Mm -hmm. I totally agree. I just think that like looking at your social media and looking at, you know, all the effort that we've put into ours, it's just that trust factor where people are just, you know, consuming a ton of bullshit all the time, a ton of sales tactics all the time. And so when they come across someone who's just like doing what they do every single day online, that's a huge trust builder right out the gate and it makes that sale or developing that community or continuing to build that business so, so much easier. Definitely. I do have one final question as we're kind of wrapping up before we let you plug everything. You answered this question last night on your um, webinar or your masterclass, and I thought it was a really good answer. And I know that a lot of people are constantly looking for real estate specific CPAs. So what do you think short term rentals should look for in a CPA if they're looking for somebody specific that's like niche down? Yeah, I would say the first thing would be like they should be able to rattle off all the common short term rental destination markets, right? Like, you know, I know like, I have clients in Gulf Shores, Destin, 38, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, you know, Smoky Mountains, Michigan, Ohio, New York, uh, you know, um, well, what's the Coachella Valley area, Big Bear. Like they should be able to name like all the markets, right? Because uh, if they can't, then that's a sign like they haven't worked with a lot of short-term rental hosts, you know, because there's a lot of them that deal with long-term rentals and they might have a client or two that has a short-term rental, like a little small lake house or something, but if they can't name off all the markets, that's probably a good sign that they don't deal with short-term model hosts. The second one would say they really have to understand the the interrelations between the the law the loss rules that I talk about and people's W two incomes and whether or not somebody qualifies to actually take the loss against their income. So I I'll, I can send the link after a little blog that I wrote about this to basically ask or see if they are familiar with those rules, but. Number one, starting off is, yeah, if you can, if they can name off markets, it's probably a good sign that they work with short-term rental hosts before. Um, so number one, number two. And number three, I would, it, w- it would be if they own rentals themselves, because, I mean, it did not take me long at all to understand the tax code and be like, well, why am I not owning these things? Um, but I do think that really goes back to society and the school system in general. Like we're, we're, we're all taught to just live in this little box that we're predefined as to say, you're going to be an engineer, or you're going to be a plumber or a welder or an accountant. And we're not really supposed to like poke back at that box. Right. Uh, but it takes people like us to have this sort of entrepreneurship mindset to say like, ah, that doesn't really work for me. Like, I think there's, I think, you know, I think God has something bigger for me here. And so, uh, you know, we're taught to be, um, you know, the tenant, not the landlord. We're taught to be the employee, not the employer. We're taught to be the borrower, not the lender. And just all these different things that if we can kind of wrap our heads around this and really push the community, help more people achieve financial freedom. So. That's amazing. And also, when people are looking for a CPA, I mean, is it if you understand the tax code in one state, do you understand the tax code in another state? Does it vary across state lines? Like, do you need a CPA if you plan on scaling outside of the state that you've started in? Is there an advantage to finding one that knows it across the board for every state? Or is it pretty much the same? And it, you know, any CPA should be able to do it. 
You definitely want them familiar with whatever state you reside in as a resident. So if you're in Michigan investing in, say, like Florida or Tennessee, California, it doesn't necessarily matter what states you're investing in, but it definitely does matter whatever your home state is uh, and what your home state says about those those other states and, and their rules. So we, you know, I have people on my team because a lot of our clients are from California. I actually have two CPAs that are from California. So they really understand those California rules uh, better than anybody else does. But you know, I wouldn't put too much weight on that, but they should definitely be familiar with some of the local like credits that you might have available in your state. So, for example, like on a federal level, I'm not able to deduct my property taxes because I make too much money. But on the state level, they have a they have a six hundred dollar credit if you pay property taxes. So somebody who's not somebody who's not a CPA in Illinois is not going to know that. Right. 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 That makes a lot of sense. Um, and then I have one more question before we wrap up here. Um, we, you know, listened to you speak in Nashville um, with the entire team and um, Bill had made a point about, you know, how well you communicate with his legal team as well. When people are looking to, you know, structure um, their LLCs and their trusts and things like that, how important is it for maybe you to take that recommendation of who to use on the legal side from your CPA um, or how easy is it for a CPA to work with someone that they don't know? Because I want that synergy that you guys talked about in our own business or to recommend to people going forward. Um, and so I just want to know the weight that we should put on that. If like our CPA has a legal team that they would prefer, um, how important that is to keep that synergy between those two. Yeah. I mean, cause oftentimes like the left hand doesn't know what the right's doing. So some people will hire one before the other, like they'll hire a CPA before the attorney or the attorney before the CPA, and they may or may not always be on the same page. So one of the really common mistakes that I saw in like 2020 and 2021, for example, was you had a husband and wife who are buying a short term rental. They're like, Hey, let's just both put our name on the LLC and let's buy the rental. Well, if even if you're husband and wife and if you're a multi-member in an LLC, you have to file what's called a partnership tax return, which, you know, can be an extra thousand dollar fee just to file an extra return that you otherwise wouldn't have had to do if you would have just had a single member LLC. Maybe the husband or maybe the wife is a single member in the LLC. So something, you know, I've seen so, so many people make that mistake of not knowing when they get started, whereas just a quick phone call with me or even if they would have just watched one of my videos, I would have been I would have said, hey, look, you know. From a, from a tax filing perspective, the single member LLC is going to be the easiest because you don't have to file an additional return. Um, but a lawyer might tell you, well, you should have a multi-member LLC because it might be better for legal and asset protection. So you just want to make sure that they're both on the same page. I typically recommend, and um, if you're interested, if you go into my Facebook group, I have a video that I did or a masterclass that I did on entity structuring for tax purposes. I try to keep it as, as protective, but as least cost efficient or at least as least costly to you as a taxpayer. So as protective as possible with the least amount of tax returns you want to file is what I try to push for. Yeah. yeah. So when you first start structuring a new property for a short-term rental, it would make the most sense to get your attorney and your CPA on a call right out the gate. Yeah. Or, or really invest a lot of time into a good asset protection plan from the start. And then all you're doing is just adding a little bit to what you have already there. So like, it, I mean, I can't show you mine, but if I was to show you mine, the way it's set up is just like, I just need to open up this little LLC in whatever state that I have, everything else just kind of flows through because it's already set up, you know, versus like a lot of people will kind of backtrack and say, oh, I pushed this off for so long. 
and now I have to kind of go and reinvent everything. If you have the asset protection plan set up in the first place, you can always make changes to it and basically just make additions to it, I guess. Yeah, we're going through that currently where we, you know, we're on property number, I guess, six overall, and we're just starting to set up that asset protection. And it is more of a monster going backwards than it would have been just to do it when we first started. And I think our thing was we had this perception that it was going to be insanely expensive and we just didn't have the money to put into it mm-hmm. out the gate. And in reality, it's not that insanely expensive as we thought it was going to be. So we're like looking back being like, wow, if we could recommend it a different way to everybody else, just start it at the beginning and get it handled day one. Yeah. Uh, if you want to hit the record, if you want to hit the end record button, I can show you guys after the call. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I think that's all the questions that yeah. we've got for you today. This has been jam-packed with value. We've kind of been all over the board talking about taxes, legal, and personal branding. So um, thanks for being all over the place with us. Um, go ahead and plug all of your socials so anyone who's listening knows where to find you. We will link it below the video on the podcast and on the YouTube channel, regardless of where you're watching it. So you can find it there. But go ahead and tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, it's going to be all social media platforms at Learn Like a CPA. So that'll be Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, if you go to Facebook, I have a Facebook group called Tax Strategies for Real Estate Investors. We have over 5,700 real estate investors in there. And those are the two places you can find me. Uh, you could go to my website, learnlikeacpa.com, and download my free tools so you can get access to some of my deal calculators, spreadsheets, et cetera. Yes. And he has several free webinars that he offers as well that we sat on last night. So. Uh, we appreciate all that you do in the industry. We, who are not tax professionals, desperately need your advice. So um, thank you always for adding value. And thanks for coming on the show and uh, helping our listeners out a little bit more. So Emily, do you want to plug all of our stuff as we wrap up as well? Yep. We are The Carwells on all social media platforms. And you guys can find us on our website, thecarwells.space. All right, guys. Well, that's it for today. Ryan, thank you again for joining us and we will catch you all next time. Bye. Bye, everyone.